Hi, this is Bob Clark, and you're listening to Snow the Goalie. ice chips had settled, the Philadelphia Flyers had become victorious against the Pittsburgh Penguins at Lincoln Financial Field. They knew that there was uncertainty looming as 48 hours from then, the NHL trade deadline was to stare them down. They looked around the room and they questioned who would still be there after 3 p.m. on Monday. And Wayne Simmons is gone and it's really sad. Uh, welcome back into Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, the People's podcast, the Players podcast, the Personnel podcast, and oh my God, Anthony, can, can we even call it now? It's the Hall of Fame podcast. That's right. Although we got to come up with a better, with like a more alliterative thing there, because we need it to be a P. The perennial podcast, because he's a perennial player. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We uh, sat down for a half-hour interview with uh, Hockey Hall of Famer, former Flyers player, GM, and now Executive Vice President. Of course, that's Bobby Clark. Um, that'll be coming up later in the show. A lot of really good stuff uh, that we got out of that interview with him. So uh, make sure that you stay tuned for that. But of course, Anthony, my co-host over there, Anthony Sanfilippo, who you can find on Twitter at Ant San Philly. Um, we, we have the trade deadline stuff to break down. Of course, when Chuck Fletcher took over uh, for the deposed Ron Hextall, we wondered how much he would blow up this team, how much he would blow up the core. And really going into Monday's deadline, he hadn't done a whole lot of blowing up, a bunch of minor moves. Um, a lot of heat was going on, and of course, Anthony, being the most connected guy in the city, has a has a lot of insight, I'm sure. So, Anthony, how are you feeling uh, after not only the trade deadline, but of course, the Flyers won last night against the uh, Buffalo Sabers. Not only did they win that, they won the Stadium Series game on Saturday. Uh, they have the third best record in hockey since January 9th, uh, behind only St. Louis Blues and the Tampa Bay Lightning. And we're hearing a lot of this when we show up in the locker room, Russ. This is what we're getting a lot of. You ready? This is what the Flyers play after winning a game. I kid you not. Keep it going. They went from. They Keep went going. from. Wait, shh. Sh- okay, here we coming. go. Oh, here we go. I know, Rush, you get excited about this. Here we go. All right. How could you not be excited after that? <laughs> mind so, you, mind you, this used to. The, the song that the team came out to earlier whenever they would win was Mo Bamba, which you haven't heard it, um, really does sound like a dog with indigestion. So um, if if you uh, had heard that earlier in the season, it's it's very clear that it had nothing to do with Dave Haxall. It had to do with the victory song. It was the hockey gods saying, please make it stop all night long. Who could who could hate it? it, it didn't they? They used to have um, uh, the, that rapper, uh, Knock, uh, was it? Mac Miller. Yeah, Mac Miller. Not was it was knock knock. knock. Is that, yeah, yeah. That's that a good song. used to be. That was that was a fun. That was a fun song. Um, Mo Bamba is awful. Awful, they, awful, yeah, awful. Mo Bamba was a bad choice. But this is interesting. It's like it's crazy to me. It's you know this is a this is not an old team by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not certain who who picks the song. But I mean, the, the Flyers are a pretty young team, and for to have somebody picking Lionel Richie. Uh, as the as the song that they play after after they win uh, actually kind of tickles me a little bit. But, uh, no, it's great. I mean, look, the Flyers are playing some really good hockey. Um, you, you really can't question, uh, um, you know, 
their determination to to make this season relevant. Um, it, it took a while. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. About uh, two months ago, we were looking at this team as potentially, you know, uh, losing enough games that they would be in the running for one of the top picks in the 2019 draft. That doesn't seem uh, likely any longer. Capo uh, Caco, of... we hardly knew thee. Yeah, Capo Caco. Although, I mean, look, when they got Nolan Patrick, they jumped up, like you know, you know, ridiculously up to the number two spot from way down. Um, you know, they shouldn't have been uh, shouldn't have been where they were uh, there. So, I mean, you know, you can get lucky, but what are the odds of getting you know that lucky twice in three years? I, I don't see it happening. But the, the fact Cavaliers that, did it uh, did it years ago. Remember they yeah. got LeBron, they got Anthony Bennett, they got um well, or the Orlando, uh, Orlando, Ma- Orlando Magic too with yeah. the one the You're one right. ping pong ball to get Shaq there right, and then Penny yep. Hardaway and then Shaq. Um, the Flyers fifteen four and one in their last twenty games, and that's a good number because it's twenty games. It's not like it's just you know a couple weeks. Twenty games is a quarter of the season, right? I mean that's a long period of time. Fifteen four and one, thirty one points. Only the Blues have thirty six. The Lightning have thirty two. You got to take the lightning out of it because if you take, you know, lightning are fifteen three and two in that same time frame. Take that out; they were thirty three eight and two before that. So yeah, they're like really good, right? Um, so it's really the Flyers and the Blues. And so what's the difference between the two? Is the Blues play out west, which is a bunch of bad teams, and the Flyers play in the east, where it's very top heavy. There's some, there's some bad teams in the east, no question, um, but it's a very top heavy conference. So it's really, you know, while the Blues have been able to play this well and get themselves back into a playoff spot actually pretty comfortably, they're eight points up on the first non-playoff team. Um, the Flyers are still seven points out of a playoff spot. Um, and, and so that really is the difference between the two. Um, it only it only gets harder from here, Russ. Uh, they have Flyers have 19 games remaining, 11 of them on the road, 15 against teams that are either ahead of them or in the standings or currently hold a playoff spot in the West. Um it's brutal. I mean, there aren't. Yeah, it's it's a brutal schedule. Um, and I think Jake Voracek said at practice on Wednesday that um, that he felt that the team needed to win 13 of these 19 to have a shot. And I think he's pretty close. I mean, you know, 26 points would that get you in? It probably doesn't. It probably gets you right on the doorstep. I think if you win 13, you're probably going to have to have a couple overtime losses in there. Um, You probably need 28 points is what what I was kind of thinking. But even then, I mean, boy, you need other teams to start to falter. And, you know, Carolina's playing just as well. Carolina's 14-6-1 since that same time frame, right? So they're playing just as good hockey. Um, And then, you you know. The, the single games that they have, it's a flyer schedule. I mean, when you really break it down, they have to play the Islanders and the Capitals three times each. They're the two teams that are tied for first in the division. They have uh, two with Carolina, who I mentioned, 14-6-1. Two with Toronto, who's a really good team, right, from the other divi- yep. from the Atlantic division. And they have single games against Columbus, uh, which comes up Thursday night, Pittsburgh, Montreal, Dallas, and St. Louis. And of those five, only the Canadians are at Wells Fargo Center. The other four are on the road. So and then the four easy games are New Jersey, Ottawa, the Rangers, and uh, Chicago. They're the four uh, teams that have worse records or are behind the Flyers uh, in the standings. So it's a it's a tough thing to expect them to keep playing as well as they're playing for another 19 games and to you know do it against the kind of competition that they're going to play against. And look, me being the eternal optimist on our show, I I said to you a few times, you know, I think it's it's always funny to me when we talk about 
the fact that like a, a team at this point, you know, to say that the next 19 games they have to, to go off and rattle off a ton of points. And it seems very unlikely, especially because they've gone on such a hot streak here. But, you know, the inverse of that, I guess, you know, you could you can put this back to like what the Phillies did last summer, right? Like you get off to a really good start. You you hold on to the division lead for a long time and then you collapse at the end of the season. I mean, these things do happen. It's just it seems a lot more rare for it to happen in the second half of the season, that second half surge that leads you into the postseason. And, and yeah, I mean, a lot of that has to do with the fact that typically if your team starts off slowly, um, there's going to be either a coaching change, perhaps a front office change. In the case of the Flyers, it happened with both. Um, you would have assumed that there would have been some core pieces sent off. It didn't happen. And it was almost as if that kind of galvanized the team. And, you know, uh, unless you think that, uh, you know, parting ways with Dale Weiss, sending Yori Laterra down, trading away Jordan Wheel uh, were the, the real things. Those guys were the ones that were holding the whole team back. You know, I, I guess, if nothing else, as a fan, you can sit back and say, at least we know that this team isn't as bad as they were to start the season, right? Like, I think even if they miss the postseason, or if they do manage to make it in, and they, they will certainly, almost assuredly, get smoked in four, five games at best against the Tampa Bay Lightning in round one, you can sit back and say there are a lot of good pieces to build around here. I mean, Nolan Patrick has had a, a second-half resurgence. It's not always showing up on the stats on the, the stat sheet. You're not seeing it necessarily in terms of point production, but when you watch the motor that the guys come out with in the second half of the season, it's evident. You wrote up a thing about Oscar Lindblom on the site today, and he, he's been, I mean, I think about as good as you could have hoped, especially considering, you know, going into the season what we thought he might have been as a player. He's been able to get, you know, to, to get goals, to set up his teammates. He's been winning a lot of battles on the boards against, a, a, you know, much larger players. And ultimately, I mean, I, th- I think those two guys, you know, you, you look at it and you say, we can pair that with Phil Myers getting experience in meaningful games now. Uh, although I can't imagine Scott Gordon's going to keep rolling with uh, seven defensemen on any given night. You look at the strides that Travis Sanheim has taken. You look at the turnaround Ivan Provorov has had since Rick Wilson came in. And you start saying, like, there are pieces here. You look at even Morgan Frost is close to averaging two points per game um, in uh, in his league. And, and you, you sit back and you say, there are definitely things that are, are here to build around. And you go into the offseason with $30, 35000000 million in cap space, and you can see a really quick turnaround. I mean, they, they certainly were not the team that should have been in the Jack Hughes sweepstakes. Um, and it's it's clear now, I think, more than ever that these guys, when they are able to get it together on the same page, even small groups of this team at the same time, you know, I, I think we're I, I think we're looking at a team that can contend next year, maybe not for the top of the conference, but it's certainly not going to be worse than a, a middle of the standings team. Well, they can't. I can tell you what you say. They may not be able to compete for the top of the conference. Well, they might not be as good as as Tampa, but they certainly can compete for the Metro next year. I mean, do you think that this team with a, with a couple of changes can't be as good as the Islanders and the Capitals? I mean, the Penguins are on their way out, right? I mean, we, we see the, the decay of that team. Um, Just wait until they hit the postseason. And, well, here's the thing. So they might a, not even that, get, they might not even get there. They yeah. might not even get there. So the, the point is, is, you know, Penguins don't have the farm system. They have nothing left. They've traded away all their top draft picks, and, boy, they really have nothing left. So the, the Penguins are at, at best, a, you know, well, they're never going to be a bad team with Crosby and Malkin, right? But they'll – they're, they're certainly a mediocre team with Crosby and Malkin right now. Um, Carolina, to me, and, and I first you know mentioned that on the um, when we did the podcast roundtable. Um, that's the team that that I look at and say they're the team that's going to be the competitor in this division 
for the next several years. Like they're they're the up and comer. Yeah. Um, but I mean, still, even with that said, I mean, is there anybody else in the Metro Columbus? I mean, they got their their no. Who, I mean, and they're, they're all in this year. They're probably going to lose Panarin. They're certainly going to lose Sergey Bobrovsky. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're they're not a long term. I, I you know I guess they're they're still a lure um, that Madison Square Garden provides. I think to a, a free agent potentially. Um, wearing the red, white, and blue of the Rangers. Like, I, I think there's still something to they be can re- said for that. They can rebound quickly, in other words. They could be yeah. contenders again. So yeah, they, I, they, I they don't have that outlook right now, but I think they're much more likely to come out of, you know, the next two years and, say, be a, a threat uh, long-term because they have that, that drawing power that a lot of teams, quite frankly, in the Metro don't have. I guess I look just more at what that Atlantic division is. And, you know, when I talk about competing at the top of the conference, like, I look at... Both Tampa Bay and uh, Toronto, I think, are probably the two best over there. I know that Boston is is in second right now. Um, but for as deep as Toronto and Tampa Bay have proven to be, they both are going to go into the offseason with a, a lot of question marks, specifically around a couple of restricted free agents in uh, Mitch Marner for Toronto and Braden Point for Tampa Bay. And that that's actually a thing that we will uh, you'll you'll hear a little bit later when we get to the interview with Bobby Clark. But the idea of potentially tendering an offer an RFA sheet to one of those players, those are guys that immediately turn around your team. I mean, they're they're guys that immediately are installed as top six forwards on this team. And not just like top six in the sense that, you know, oh, this guy can come in and, and play on PP1 and net goals that way, right? Like these are guys that could fundamentally change the entire trajectory of this team for the next eight years. So I, I look at that and I say, man, if you have the ability to take a, a dent out of one of those teams, by offering an RFA sheet and either making those teams have to lose some of their depth via trade so they can match the offer sheet or flat out stealing one of those players away. I mean, that I think is the best way to kind of move forward because not only does it help you, but it also hurts them. I, I think those two teams are the ones that I up the most. I know that you have to care about your division, but in terms of coming out of the Eastern Conference, like those are the two teams I look at. Yeah, no, no, there's no doubt about it. There, that's why I said, and I, and I wouldn't dismiss Boston. I think Boston's got a lot of young talent there as well, and you see how they're playing together right now. They're the second best record in the East behind Tampa. Um, so I, you know, I wouldn't, I would include them in as a third team. So, but yeah, but I mean, the, the beauty of it is, is that the Metro is there for the taking for the Flyers, and I, I think that it, with, I don't know, a couple of couple of changes, they need a thir- they need another center. Um, I'd like to see another scoring winger. I'd like to see a, a veteran defenseman. I think those are the three spots that between, you know, the end of the season and July 1 when free agency kicks in, that if the Flyers can add to it, and they have $35 million, um, available to them under uh, under the cap. Now, granted, they have to sign a couple of young players who are going to be their own RFAs, um, so that's not all available to them. But th- there's a good amount of money that's going to be available to them to spend. I, I think that, that they can really vault themselves right to the top of the division uh, as far as being a division contender, and, and, and then just take it from there. And, you know, if you win your division or you come in second in your division – you know, you're going to have a real shot at getting to the conference finals because that means that you're – and that's – that's I don't like this current playoff system. I think it's kind of stupid. Um, but as long as it exists, it, it's going to favor the weaker division in a lot of ways because you don't have to play the better teams until the conference final. They can just knock themselves out. I mean, that's, that's the thing. That somebody from this metropolitan division, as mediocre as it is this year, is going to be in the Eastern Conference Final. Going to be in the Final Four, 
because the three best teams in the conference have to beat each other. So the system doesn't – the playoff system stinks. But it, for the for the Metropolitan Division, and I would say that this, this will be this way for next season as well, yeah, it, it helps. It helps that you're in the weaker division in the conference. So I think that it, I think that there's a lot of benefit for the Flyers um, moving forward. And, and you know, it, you got to the trade deadline, and you know, we haven't even really touched on it just yet. They had to trade Wayne Simmons, and they had to trade him for for myriad reasons. You know, they were not going to re-sign him. And and the. The thing that I think that they let us on with as far back as when Ron Hextall was the GM, and I think even Chuck Fletcher a little bit let us on, that oh yeah, well we're you know we're talking to the agent, we're talking to Simmer, Wayne Simmons, and um, you know see if we can't find something, you know get something done. <laughs> they were never going to get anything done because there was no way that they were going to meet what Wayne Simmons was asking for, and I don't blame Wayne Simmons for asking for a five-year contract at the age of 29, I don't blame him for that at all because if you come in less than that now and then the team doesn't give it to you, then you've only hurt yourself for free agency. So you have to you have to maintain that, you know, your your pie in the sky, your your, you know, most desirable contract situation. Um, you have to maintain that through the deadline and into the offseason. Because then, you know, when you reach free agency, that's when you can start to come back on, oh, okay, nobody's offering five years. All right, now I'll take three. Oh, so nobody's offering eight million? Okay, now I'll take six or some, whatever it is, right? Yep. So you, 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 can't, you can't give up that leverage in February or, or November or whenever the conversation was taking place. So there, the Flyers were never going to, to re-sign him, even if they were having those, you know, friendly conversations with Wayne and his agent. They were never going to resign him. So rather than keep him and let him walk as a free agent in the offseason, you get something for him. And as we talked about on the Press Row show um, Tuesday night, there was um, a belief that the Flyers could get a first-round pick for Wayne Simmons. And I think that that kind of came out from the Flyers because we thought right off right off the beginning, and we had this conversation going back to, if you go back to the Snow the Goalie episodes in the summertime, we had this conversation about if you trade Wayne Simmons, what are you going to get? And we we said then that it was a middle-round draft pick, yep. you know, and maybe a player. Because his game was trending in a negative direction, and I think, yeah, you know, and, and this comes back to the the teams and I don't know if it was a, a thing that Scott Gordon was kind of had his hand forced in doing or if he really believed in it but you would see Wayne Simmons on the power play not not putting the puck in the net right and not being part of a lot of scoring opportunities and and really I think that was if nothing else I think it was meant for him to pad those stats a little bit so that it was going to be more attractive to a team that would look to acquire him and it just never really happened and then you would you would watch when you would get out into the open ice and I mean aside from um, not the it, it was um, Simmons' last game against the Penguins at Wells Fargo Center, so not the Stadium Series game. Um, he came out with a lot of jump, and it, it looked like the Wayne Simmons of two years ago, not the one who's been kind of riddled with a lot of injuries over the last couple of years. Um, but for the most part, like it, it never looked like he was able to get out of like second gear, even in open ice. I mean, there were plenty of times where Wayne Simmons used to be able to track down a puck and really you know, create a, a, a pretty dangerous opportunity for himself and for his team. And it just didn't happen this year. And it felt like the more the team leaned on him, perhaps to try to build that trade case, 
the more it ended up hindering them. So, yeah, you're right. Like, we talked about the idea of a middle-round pick. And then we, we did get swayed a little bit because we also looked at some other trades that have been made. You know, Boyle netted, what was it, a second-round pick yeah. uh, a couple weeks ago. And we thought, well, geez, if, I mean, if he's going to get a second-round pick, then Wayne Simmons, even at this current state, has to net you at least that, right? So then we did kind of buy into that first round and maybe a prospect kind of hype. We yeah, didn't really I, have that conversation about trading an NHL player for an NHL player. And ultimately, that's what they got, plus a middle-round pick. I mean, I know people aren't thrilled with the return, although Hartman, uh, Ryan Hartman did a very good job of announcing his presence on a Tuesday night. But, you know, I, I, I think it's just like anything else, right? Something, something catches. Um, all of a sudden, a narrative, you know, everybody gets their pitchforks and their flames out. Um, you had the the never the never trade crowd who under no circumstances even if it was a first round pick didn't want to uh, didn't want to part with Wayne Simmons, and then you had the people who I think were were more pragmatic about it, and and like the realists in the situation who said like look it's it's okay that we as a fan base loved the guy loved everything that he stood for and he was a great player for us for eight years, but you also have to be realistic and he's not going to be back. And I think that's the hard thing for fans in a, in a lot of cases is you let that emotion kind of override the, the logistics and the logic. You look at the salary cap situation for next year, and there are guys that are unsigned, um, like Ivan Provorov long-term isn't signed long-term. You know that that's going to eat some of that cap space. And, you know, I put it out on Twitter, I guess it was last week, of, you know, what kind of deal would you offer Wayne Simmons if he is traded? And there was still, like, a good chunk of people who wanted to offer him, like, $4 million a year. I just don't get it. I don't see it. Well, I mean, I you know, I I don't necessarily mind four million if it's short term, if it's two years, two year eight million kind of thing. I I'm okay with it because you have the room to do it, and and he wants to be here. Then yeah, but I, I don't think he's he's not taking a two year deal though. Well, that's right? the thing. So, I mean, I, I who knows what he's going to take, right? Yeah. I mean, but if you look at it, I mean, you have Scott Lawton, Travis Konechny, Ryan Hartman now, um, and then. Uh, Provorov and Sanheim, who are all RFAs going into next season. That's a lot of guys that need contracts. <laughs> okay? So that's five guys who are going to be on this team next year who need contracts. And you're probably going to have to spend a little bit of money on those guys. So that's going to, like you said, it's going to, it's going to eat into your $35 million cap space. But you can still get players that you, you, know, that you need. Um for this team and and, that, and that's fine now i will say this um just so, you know there were other teams that were interested in wayne simmons um uh, turns out that uh, uh, a trade that we had talked about back in november um was still kind of sort of a little bit being discussed um and that was um uh toronto trading looking to get wayne simmons but darren drager from tsn uh, went on their um, trade center show or post trade deadline show Monday night and said that uh, Toronto, that the flyers asking price was too high and the flyers wouldn't come off of that asking price with Toronto seeing what the flyers got Hartman and a conditional fourth round pick. I'm not, I'm convinced, convinced that the flyers were still interested in Kapanen. And that's what I was told back in November, 
And if if you're looking at the kind of player, I mean, Kapanen's got probably a little bit more scoring upside than than Hartman does, but doesn't bring the other element of the game that Hartman brings, as we saw on his very first shift uh, last uh, Tuesday night. Um, so, I mean, it, it's very similar. So you, you, they probably would have wanted Kapanen and a pick and make the pick conditional. And Toronto decided it wasn't good enough. So, I mean, they were in. The, Toronto made a call within the last hour on Wayne Simmons, according to Drager. Um, we also know that Boston was interested. We also know that Vegas was interested, but Vegas is, was interested as a plan B, obviously because Mark Stone was their number one choice, and they got their number one choice. Um, Boston was also interested in another player on they the were, roster, fair to they say. Were also, they were interested in Michael Roffel, yes. Which is um, interesting. Let me... I think it's interesting just because we haven't seen a lot out of Michael Roffel this year. Um, he's had some injuries. He hasn't been in, in the lineup. Um, but if, if you look at the kind of player that Michael Roffel is, I guess like he, he does fit what Boston does. But then the question is, were they interested in Roffel as part of a package deal to go along with Wayne Simmons, or were they just looking at a lower-cost move, You know, maybe a, a mid-to-lower round pick for right. Roffel? It doesn't I, look I, like he's going to be back with the team next year. So no. that's why I'm a little bit surprised that, that if that – um, that level of interest was there from Boston, no matter how cursory it might have been. I- I'm surprised that Chuck Fletcher didn't try to get anything for him because Raffle just doesn't well, make so sense I'll, here. I'll, I'll give you the reason why it didn't happen. So you have to, when you go into the trade deadline, you have to make a determination. So, so the Flyers still feel like I, today, uh, even, that they are still in this playoff race, right? So you have to make a determination as to if you're going to get rid of a player and not bring a player back in return, um, what kind of return do you need in the terms of prospect slash pick for, for said player that would be palatable enough knowing that it would probably hurt your team's chances of making the playoffs this season? And maybe Michael Roffel alone didn't net that value. But they valued him enough for this push for this year, saying, you know what, we have so many. Let's say just for kicks, and I don't have this specific, but let's say for kicks, Boston offered a sixth-round pick for Michael Roffel, right? You you could sit there and say, all right, fine, yeah, just just take it. He's an unrestricted free agent. You're not going to re-sign him anyway, and you get the extra pick. If you're Chuck Fletcher, do you sit there and say, all right, yeah, I'll take that sixth-round pick in 2020, which is probably what it would have been. I mean, that's when the Nashville pick conveys right it's not a 2019 pick it's a 2020 pick um but uh, so let's say it's a sixth round pick in 2020 and you sit there and say well you know gee raffle kills penalties for us he's very versatile uh can play him multiple places in the lineup you know up and down he can play all three forward positions is it worth me adding yet another draft pick because the flyers have a ton they have all of their own picks plus four additional draft picks in the next two years um, is it worth getting even another one that's a lottery ticket at best in the sixth round to get rid of Michael Roffel now? Or do you just sit there and say, hey, he helps us have a shot to make the playoffs this year? So I, it's almost like I, not trading him is, 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 is as good. I get that so, a draft, like a, a later round draft pick really is a lottery ticket. I totally get that. But I, I think the counter to that is you're at least getting someone and you have a better chance to hit on someone than to hit on nothing, right? Yeah. And so it's a stab in the dark. And, and ultimately, I don't know how much Michael Raffle really does help you down the stretch on this team. Like, I, I'm not so sure. You know, like, I, I look at um, 
when you had sat down with uh, with Flair to talk about the the prospects, you know, he mentioned Connor Bunneman, and to me, like, I don't know, does does Connor Bunneman really move the needle? Maybe not. Um, Nick Abi Kubel has been injured. Um, you look at the at the forward core down in Lehigh Valley, and like, all right, maybe maybe there's not somebody that you could plug in right now that would make an impact if you were really hoping for a, a deep playoff run. But I don't know, man. I, I I have a hard time rationalizing hanging on to somebody you know you're not going to keep, just for the sake of of maybe trying to make that eighth seed to to get yourself slaughtered by Tampa Bay. That's just me. Um. Yeah, but so I will say this as well. You got to consider the number of contracts that the Flyers have, right? And and the number of contracts that they're going to have, and this includes minor league players, and you're you're limited to fifty. Right, And most teams don't like to be right at 50. Most teams like to operate at like 47, 48. So that way you have a little bit of roster flexibility if you want to sign someone or if you want to trade for somebody. You know, you can do some, you can do some things. So most teams don't sit right on that 50 number. The Flyers have 10 draft picks in 2019. 10. That's a lot. Now, do I think that they're going to use all 10? Probably not. They'll probably, tr- you know, try and, you know, I, I, would, I would venture to, to guess that they would maybe maybe try and move the two threes to get up into the second round or you know maybe they move a six and a seven to get up into the five or you know they trade that seventh rounder for a sixth rounder next year who knows whatever right but so the, so they may not actually use all 10 but if you look at what they have coming back and then you say well geez we have all these kids coming yeah you don't sign them right away you don't give them their entry-level contract right away except for usually you know your, your top the draft guys but you really have to keep in mind where players are and guys that are coming over like we talked about Ustamenko and uh, Sandstrom coming over next year uh, they're under contract for next season right so that's two more names that you're probably not even thinking about so adding more draft picks are more players you have to consider to be under contract and so there again it, it comes to the point where the Flyers have a pretty full cupboard with picks um is it are you just going to trade a guy just to get a pick and then you have to worry about you know you have to worry about whatever you got to worry about as far as numbers and I so like to me I think that I can understand why you don't individually trade Michael Roffel for a late round draft pick at that point I get it um the other two names that were talked about um again asked about I don't think either one ever got to um uh deep discussion um, were Radko Gudis and Shane Gostisbehere. Um, I, I do know of one team that was um, interested in Gostisbehere. I, I don't want to say who they were because then I might kind of <laughs> give something away. But uh, there was one Western Conference team. There you go. I'll say that. There was a Western Conference team uh, interested in Gostisbehere. The Flyers uh, didn't really engage it. Um, but I will say this, you know, for, for all the – kickback that we got for suggesting that the Flyers are considering moving on from Gostaspare. You know, locally we you know we were kind of thrown under the under the bus a little bit saying like you know, why would they trade Gostaspare? He's 25 years old, he's top 10 Nars trophy guy. You guys are I, pushing an agenda. Yeah, uh, you don't again. like Ghost. Yeah. You don't thing. like an offensive defenseman. What's wrong with you? I yeah. will tell you that if you watched the uh, trade coverage on uh, NHL Network yesterday, which uh, they were feeding, they, their feed was from uh, Sportsnet in Canada. Um, they had their players who, you know, that they've been hearing are available uh, via trade, like po- constantly popping up on the screen all, the, all throughout the entire day. 
and one of them that was up there was Shane Gostisbehere. So, so just to point out, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to say, see, we told you so. More so that it was that, yeah, the 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 name was is out there, and the Flyers put it out there, and it's not like, it's not like this is something that you know, Joe Joe general manager from another team just calls up and says, hey, Chuck, would you consider moving Shane Gostisbehere? And Chuck's like, oh, no, I would never move him. That's not how that conversation goes. But there's emails that take place back and forth or text messages between these GMs and assistant GMs and other staff members and, and people, you know, it, it's well known who are being who's being bandied about. Now, sometimes guys are just thrown out there just to kind of see what their value is, and then teams say, no, we're not going to do it. And I, I certainly think that that was the case for the trade deadline with Shane Gostisbehere. Um, and, I, and to an extent, Radko Gudis, too. I, I think that the Flyers looked at it and said, you know you know what? Two months ago, Radko Gudis was a prime target, right-hand defenseman, stay-at-home guy, kind of, kind of defenseman that moves at the deadline. But he's had such a good year, such a good year. And he signed for next year at a manageable cap number, $3.35 million. You know what? Maybe we hang on to him. Maybe it's better to not move on from that contract. Um, you know, and Gostas Bear, again, he signed for four more years before he hits uh, unrestricted free agency. You know, he signed for $4.5 million. Yeah, you're probably not going to get his actual value right now. So maybe you look at – maybe you reconsider that in the offseason, right? Maybe that's something that you talk about in the summertime. But right now, no, it doesn't make sense. It, it didn't make sense to move him. So – those were the four names, obviously Simmons being number one, uh, Raffle, Gudis, and Gossesbear, that brought interest from around the league. But only one was done, um, and that's usually the case. I mean, it's usually, you know, most teams aren't trying to trade five guys at the trade deadline. <laughs> it's, it's too crazy how it works. Um, so anyway, um, that's how the Flyers' trade deadline went, and uh, we, we got more uh, details about how it went. <laughs> From, from our, our interview, our from exclusive an sit down. Kind of an unexpected conversation. Well, not, not that it was an unexpected conversation, but unexpected that, that he was as open as he was about it. Of I, course I he was. We are, we are, in terms of people who interview, we are just a welcoming duo. We get everybody excited. We get everybody nice and calm. We sit back and we just listen. We're good listeners. That's really what it is. Yeah. Everybody that we interview, they love us. They think we're the best in the business, believe me. Anyway, it was uh, it, it it really was a a fascinating interview. So let's cut to that now. Um, afterwards, we'll we'll do a little bit of reflect of reflection because as Anthony uh, alluded to, Bobby Clark gave us a few things that I think will help to clarify a few things that happened around the trade deadline and what could be to come in the off season. So without further ado, here is our interview with Hall of Famer Bobby Clark. Russ, we have a really special guest on the Snow the Goalie podcast this week. Um, it's a real honor for me as a guy who covered him as a general manager, watched him as a player. That's how old I am. Not, not to not to make you feel any older, Bob, but uh, watched well, him as a player. You've already done that. So thank you. <laughs> covered him as a general manager. Uh, Flyers legend Bob Clark joins us on the Snow the Goalie yeah. podcast. Bob, thanks for, thanks for taking the time out. Absolutely. We really do appreciate yeah. it. Um, yeah, one of the things you know, we were I was excited to find out you were going to be back in town, and one you know we said you know we got to talk to Bob. One of the things we wanted to ask about, especially since yesterday was you know the trade deadline for the current team. Um, it, it's really kind of you know talk a little bit about what goes in. Into you know this 
this job for a general manager at this time of year. And I also want to ask you a little bit about Chuck because I know you have a, a, a past history with him. So let's let's start with that first, and then we'll dive into what deadline day is like. Um, but uh, you know, when the general manager change was happening here, um, I know that you came up from Florida and, and were kind of you know involved in the conversations. And and uh, Chuck Fletcher becomes the new GM. Obviously, he got his start with you down in Florida, right? Yeah. When, when you were when you were the GM down there. Yeah. Uh, what what attributes about Chuck Fletcher as a general manager really made him the kind of guy that would fit perfectly for this franchise? Well, number one, <clears throat> excuse me, we weren't a very good team, so we needed someone who was experienced, um, someone who had a different view of how you build a hockey team and how, those kind of things. Hex, he had his own view, and you can't say it's wrong because it's his own view, but Chuck's was different, and and he was experienced, and he's much more uh, less private. Hexy was a very, very private man, and, uh, and again, I'm not saying that as a criticism, right. but Chuck was more open with with everybody so everybody felt like they were part of the team. Hexy was much more private. It's, it's just a different style. It's a of style. Right. That's right. It's yeah, but but I mean obviously I mean you were always when you were a general manager, you were the kind of guy who who included everyone. Like you talked to a lot of of your scouts and you talked oh. to your assistants and I mean there was there's a process, right? I mean most people just think this is a, a one man operation, but the public doesn't realize just how many people are really involved in this, right? Oh, you're right. Absolutely. Everybody has to. I mean, how do you have a team if everybody's not involved? But yesterday when, you know, the trading deadline for the last three or four days, all the pro scouts are in and sitting in meetings and Chuck's keeping them up to date on what's going on. And, you know, do you like this player? Do you like this deal and stuff? It's a, for me, who I've been through that before. But it's really interesting to watch when it's going on, and I don't have any, and don't want any uh, right. say in any trades or none of that. That's Chuck's business. But, right. But I had a, a really enjoyable four days just talking to the scouts and listening to those guys and their opinions and all that, and how it all came down to the end when they made the deal. So w when you mentioned scouting, I, I'm fascinated by this kind of thing. I know our listeners, viewers are. Mm -hmm. um, to pull back the curtain a little bit, Versus the, the time that you were a GM in the league versus now, you talk about scouting and, and the network of scouts, that the ability now that an organization has at a moment's notice to have film come in, game notes, it no longer has to be something where everybody is in the room. Now, the last couple of days leading up to the trade deadline, I would assume that, that they do. You, you yeah, said that. Yeah. Do you almost wish that in your time as a GM, you would have had the information so readily available? Well... In those days, you did think you had the information. It just took longer to get it and stuff, obviously. But <laughs> right. in those days, we were modern, too, for those days. It doesn't work in today's world. I mean, right. these guys with their computers and all that stuff, they're, you know, they bring up every player from every team and everybody they saw and all that instantly. Of course, we didn't have that. But when you see it here over the last three or four days, the scouts talking to Chuck and each other and all that stuff. It it hasn't changed that much in that respect. 
just the information is a lot more and a lot quicker to get and stuff. You got analytics and all that kind of stuff. But the decision making that, that Chuck has still comes down to talking with the people who work for you and getting their opinions and all that kind of stuff. That hasn't changed. When you look at when you look at analytics, do you do you sit there? I mean, I know you're kind of an old school guy. Do you kind of scoff at it a little bit, at, at, the, at the way it's kind of being brought into the sport, or do you sit there and say, well, there is value to it, but just maybe not as much value as people might want to think that there is. That that would be the proper way. I think it's an absolute necessity now for for all these guys. But I think the gut feeling the you know, the verbal talk between the scouts and Chuck and his staff and all that kind of stuff is still more important than the analytics. You know, some guys don't turn up very good on the analytical stuff, but they can play. Right. You know, you got to make that decision. Is it going to go by analytics or can the guy play? Can he help us win? That's, you know, thank heavens that's Chuck's job. <laughs> well, that, that, I mean, that is the thing that I, I knew Anthony and I go back and forth a, a lot about. And, mm-hmm. And it feels like a, a lot of times people tend to side with whoever writes in, in an analytical manner because it looks intelligent, right? Yeah. But ultimately, if, if you extrapolate data and, and you really put it over the course of a season, it might be the difference between a couple shots on goal, but in a percentage form, it looks really wildly intelligent. Yeah. When, when you hear things like, I, I don't know how often you're around you know, hearing this, but when you hear somebody say, well, the team's actually better than the numbers indicate because the expected goals say that they should, you know, have I don't know two ga- two goals more in a game, and then that means that the Flyers, in in theory, should be the third ranked team in the Eastern Conference. Does, does that kind of stuff cloud the the judgment of a of you know an evaluator? Does it cloud the judgment of of the fans? Is is it an unfair way to look at at the sport as a whole? Yeah, for me, I would think it's it's unfair. I mean, the results. If you win, you get two points, right? And if you got 80 points, you're probably in first place. Those are black and white. You know, what do the analytics tell you that we should only have 60 points? Or those kind of things. For for me, are like it's a gut. Chuck Chuck knows hockey players. He knows the people he works for. Him. He knows what the team wants or what he would like to get to help the team and those kind of things. They, that comes from your intelligence and your hockey gut feelings, not from analytics. When you first hired Chuck, what was it about him as a young guy back then that really made you say, this is a kid that's going to you know, be really good in this role and then eventually go on to being a good general manager? I mean, obviously you knew his dad, but I mean, I don't necessarily think this that it was just, a, just, oh, it's nepotism, right? He's, you know, Cliff never, Fletcher's son, but he's yeah, a smart well, no, kid, he, right? Chuck, oh, yeah. I knew Chuck was smart, and he was working for a uh, Donnie Me and an agent up there in Toronto, and I called Donnie and asked if, you know, I could talk to Chuck. I think, I, I don't know, Chuck was 27 or 28, but I, I never talked to his dad. His dad and I are good, real good friends. Right. I have been for 30 or 40 years, but I never talked to his dad about it. It was... I was hiring somebody for the Florida Panthers and how he could help me. Like, it wasn't like I was doing him any favors. I needed help and I had to find somebody to help. And he did. He, I mean, he was perfect from day one. And personality, work ethic, those kind of things are very, very important 
when you're the general manager because Chuck was my assistant. We spent a lot of time together. So you you got to like the guy and, and you hope that he challenges you. And Chuck would, Chuck's a bright guy, bright hockey guy. He, he challenged us what we were doing and, and it was very easy to work together. He was, I made the final decisions, but he did most of the work. You know that. That's you know usually how it is, goes. Right? That's how it usually goes. Yeah, he did the work, and then I'll. And you take all <laughs> the credit. We, we, yeah, oh well, yeah. We, but we discussed it. There was no. I mean, we started a team. That's pretty good, and we didn't uh, do it on our own. We had to hire scouts and all that, and he was a big part of it. But and he's young, but, but like I, I, I don't know. I don't really see age as being a big factor. He's capable of doing the job. I didn't care if he's 28 or 38 or 48. Well, you were young yeah. when you were the when you were first named the general manager. Yeah, 35. I mean, I you guess were 35, there, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was... If you're capable, age shouldn't be a factor. Right, and I mean, that was yeah. well before the time now where everything is, oh, go young, go young, go yeah. young. Yeah. And, you know, you're, they were like, are you kidding me? We're going to make name a guy fresh off of playing his playing career to be a general, general yeah. manager? Yeah. Uh, did you know pretty early that he would then excel to get to the point where he is where he's been a GM in the league for as long as he has? Did you have uh, an, an yeah, inkling oh, then? Well, oh, yeah. I actually thought that I would end up staying in Florida for a lot longer and he would probably take over when I'd had enough. But, um, and, and again, it's it, it's his own life. When, he, when I hired him, he was single, and then he yeah. got married and started a family and stuff. I didn't know if he wanted to spend the rest of his life in hockey. Only he knew that. Right. But obviously did, and... Had to move a few times and move his family and stuff, but worked his way to the top. And he's been a terrific general manager. Yeah. Not only for us here just getting started, but in, in Minnesota. And I'm yeah. sure I'm sure you've had an opportunity to talk to him and, and he wouldn't he wouldn't be here if, if this organization didn't like the vision that he had. But I mean I, I I'm sure he expressed that to you guys. I, it's it's something that I mean you, you probably are right on board with with where he wants to take the Flyers and how he wants to get them to back to prominence again and back to being a, an elite team in this league. Well, he, you know, you, Paul Holmgren hired Chuck. And, right, yeah, and, yeah. And Paul and I are like, like brothers, obviously, and so we talked a lot about it. But we had, or he had done all his background work. We knew Chuck's records. We knew everything about him, and I knew him personally, not that close over the last few years, but... It was, it was an easy decision, I think, for, for Homer to, to make. And, you know, I talked to them a lot about it, but it wasn't my decision. He had to make that himself. But I think that my knowledge of Chuck and everything else that he's done in the NHL was made it a pretty easy decision for Homer. So taking into account, I guess, one of the more important things, especially the Flyers going into the offseason, Chuck's going to have – Roughly thirty to thirty-five million dollars in cap space, which I'm sure would be a, a heck of a thing to step into any kind of situation like that, where you have that much space in a salary cap era. I go back to '05 because I happen to be the youngest one at the table. <laughs> Although you're not that much farther off. Than me, I'm sure. <laughs> um, when you went out and, and acquired Peter Forsberg, who was coming off of what was it two years prior, was an MVP in the league. I mean, that thing, that stole all of the headlines from the entire city. I mean, the Flyers were the number one talk of the town. Um, when, when you look at what this offseason could be, there are obviously guys that are out there that are um, going to both hit unrestricted free agency and, of course, restricted free agency 
um, a lot of young, attractive players, especially in the RFA market. Um, from, from your experience as a GM, what dictates that, that moment for an organization where it's time to go for it? The, the moment where you sit down and say, like, you know, if it's an unrestricted free agent, it's going to cost you money. RFAs, we don't, we don't see many teams offer um, sheets to restricted free agents for, yeah. I guess, a myriad of reasons. If you could speak to that, that'd be awesome. But Well, you, you're going to see it. The restricted free agents, just because of the salary cap, teams get a restricted free agent coming up, and they've only got $3 million or $4 million left in cap space. Someone's going to come in and offer five. They want the player or six. Maybe they're going to overpay to get him, but it's going to happen. That way. And even the free agency for me, the, you have to have an organization that a player wants to come to. It, it, I mean, if you had an organization and you're paying six and I have an organization paying six, if, if you've got a bad organization, you might have to pay seven or eight. But a, a good organization that a team wants, that a player wants to come to, and I think players only want to come to a team that's trying to win. You know, if these teams that are planning on spending five or six years on the bottom of the league are going to have a tough time tra- attracting a player. Players want to win. And if your organization is being built to try and win, you'll have a shot at getting these guys. Do you think the reason that we don't see a, a lot of offer shoots to RFAs has to do with the compensatory picks that, that are you know, tied to it, that are tied yeah. to it, or could it be a combination of that and just the human element of, I mean, if, if you pry away a team's, you know, prized possession that they can't afford any longer, there is that risk of burning a bridge with a, with a team, oh, right? Who cares? Yeah, okay, who so cares, in right? your case, yeah, it's who cares? cares. Okay. I, I mean, I believe that, that speaking for Chuck, of course, but when I was a gym, I only cared about the Flyers. I didn't care about any other club. Right. If the rules are there, use them. You know, and they were there, whatever works best, that's your job, right? I don't know, I wouldn't care about insulting anybody or anything <laughs> like that. Do your own job, I'll do mine. But is that why, is, is that why most, over the years, a lot of teams have not gone after well, RFAs because you don't want to, it's like a gentleman's agreement almost, and some not, people break not, it every once in a while? Yeah, not, I, you know, at all the years, and I signed a couple guys at Grattan. Grattan, yeah. Those kind of deals, um, some guys get, get, some general managers might get pissed off at you, but the ones who, who know and understand, they just realize you're using the rules. The yeah. rules are written. And I, I once had an agent, uh, his name was Don Baisley from Winnipeg, terrific human being. He's passed since, but he, he said to me, he was Forsberg agent anyway, but he said, um, you know, Clarky, if you guys don't use the rules, we're going to change them. Yeah. You know, the next collective bargaining agreement, if you're not using them, they're not working. We'll change them. Yeah. And he was absolutely right. You know, you got the, the rules are there. There's a reason that it's collectively bargained. So use them if they favor. If you can make them favor you, you know, I think. Anyway, yeah, is, that's great. Yeah. What's um What's deadline day like? I mean, if we're again, we're looking to pull back the curtain a little bit. We don't need to just go into specifics no, about yesterday, right? But but I mean, but what's it like? unless you want to? No, <laughs> no, but what's it like for a general matter? Like how like how many like how many teams are you talking to? Is there a lot of phone calls? Is it like all right, we're going to get right back to you, and then you're you're getting close to three o'clock? I mean, I know Chuck said yesterday they put this trade in at two fifty seven. I mean, that's yeah. right up against it. Like, what is what is that frenzy like on the last day? 
Well, yeah, the last day, obviously, you've got buyers and sellers, right? Right. Everybody knew that Wayne Simmons was going to become a unrestricted free agent and the Flyers would probably have to move him. Right. So the meetings, like for about three days, you're sitting there and one team's calling and suggesting this and another team's calling and suggesting that and then all of a sudden uh, somebody makes a deal and does that increase what your player is worth or does it decrease it or does this take a team out who's interested in them and all that's kind of like for me I'm sitting in with the scouts and everybody chucks in and out obviously he's got his office and his phone and he's working but it's really fun to watch Uh and I would guess it's it's probably the most exciting time for a GM the draft is exciting too but but this kind of stuff, if, if you're a GM, and when I was, I really enjoyed it. the week, three or four days leading up to the trade deadline date and all that kind of stuff. You're talking with everybody, you know what's going on, and you're trying to make a deal good for your club. And I think it's a pretty exciting time for a GM. In, in your experience as a GM, because you know we've, we've seen this, especially since Wayne got traded, so it doesn't have to be specific to him, but in your experience, it, it feels like, at least optics-wise, Fans tend to think that if if the return wasn't what they expected, they tend to say that maybe the team held on to a guy for too long, maybe his value was better a month ago, two months ago. In, in your experience, does is it is it kind of 50-50? Are there moments where, as a GM, a guy's value skyrockets at the last minute because there's a feeding frenzy for him? Do we have a, a lot of situations where a guy's value maybe does drop off because a couple other trades get made on deadline day? We're, I guess yeah. Well, I, I guess it uh, it could. You you know if you're like Chuck knew what value he wanted for Wayne Simmons. Right. That doesn't mean you're going to get it, obviously. And you're trying with how many teams? I don't know. He he could tell you guys how many teams were involved up up till the very end. And you know, did Winnipeg getting that big guy from the Rangers influence David Poyle? to want Wayne Simmons. Right. You know, those things are all in play. And I guess the closer you get to the, you know, I think probably the GMs all avoid making the final decision until they, they get exactly what they think they, they want. And obviously in, in Simmons' case, it went right to the end. How's your handicap these days, Bob? Uh, yeah, it's... <laughs> I'm a crappy golfer. You know? <laughs> I, I play a lot. You don't get any better. And about a 14, so that's that pretty me. good. That's not bad at all. Yeah, I play six days a week though. Yeah. <laughs> I lose, I lose fir- 14 <laughs> balls in the first hole if I go golfing. It's a mess. I, uh, I'm an expert at doing nothing. <laughs> I go. That's great. That's great. You know what I wanted to ask you about? When I was a kid, my dad took me, and this could never happen in professional sports yeah. today. But my dad took me some field in New Jersey. And you guys had like a summer barnstorming softball team. Oh yeah, right. I mean, yeah, and, and I everybody team, played. Yeah. Everybody played. Everybody yeah. played. What was what was that like? I mean, to have the team in the off season still kind of being together and and and, and working. And then if you could, who was a good player? Who good softball player? And who was really not a very good softball <laughs> player back then? <laughs> we had a, well, we were bringing in some American kids like Paul Holmgren could really play. Tommy yeah. Tommy Gorns, Al Hill come out of British Columbia, but. He could really play. We had some really good, good ball players. I was probably the worst on the team. 
I was captain, so I got to. <laughs> you got to play wherever you I wanted. Got right? to play where I wanted. Yeah, <laughs> but it was a great. I don't. I don't know how it could ever happen again. Like, right. We most of us were pretty young, had young families, were part of the community. We, you know, we didn't have two or three houses and stuff, and didn't have the luxury of just traveling all over like today's players. It's better today's players, I guess they have more. Right. But we were, you know, we had our softball team would go play. A, our, our trainers put up the schedule, so we'd have about a 20 game schedule. And we'd go to the neighborhood and play ball and then go to somebody's house and drink beer and <laughs> eat hot dogs and stuff with them, with all the, the ball, other team's ball players and their families and stuff. It was, it, was, it was probably pretty unique, but it was really neat for the players. We were just part of the community. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's, that's something that I think all of sports misses. Yes. Right. I mean, the fact that I mean, the, you guys were a part of the fabric. I mean, you guys, you guys made this your home, and while, whereas nowadays, for the most part, you know, some athletes are, are in cities year round, but for yeah. the most part, guys come in for the season and then they go wherever they've got to go after that, right? Yeah. And that, that, that I think that that made for better team experience uh, environment. You know what I'm saying? Because you you were around each other twelve months of the year. It certainly didn't hurt. I, I think today's world, obviously. When we're talking about uh, the early '70s, the players on our team, just the way it was, were financially a lot closer to the regular people in your community. Now the athletes, you know, their their salaries have gone so far off, and in comparison to the '70s, and I mean, thank heavens if you're an athlete, that's everybody wanted to make more money and stuff. But it was, it was. I don't know even how to describe it because I think what the players got now is is terrific, and they're we were part of the social scene, but these guys are do way more visiting hospitals, visiting this. These players of today, the kids that are coming into the the locker room and all that kind of. Drew does more than holy mackerel yeah. than I ever did, but he probably doesn't have the opportunity to be part of, you know, parent teachers association like my wife was and all that. It's he it doesn't have kids, right? I just he does more than we did, but we did our our all the players right. do more of that. Uh, mingling and visiting hospitals and all that stuff. We were almost just we were part of the community but yeah. Didn't uh, didn't get out to those kind of affairs. It just wasn't done in those days, you know, once in a while you you'd get to see a kid but the, uh, and the Phillies were really good at the time and the Eagles there's lots of great teams around lots of great athletes yeah and it was uh, it was fun it was different it was different it was just different a, oh yeah, well, yeah. Hell, there, every business you're in is different after 10 years and then 20 yeah. and now it's 40 <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there's one thing that I've, I've really been wondering you've spent your entire adult life in, in and around the National Hockey League and playing hockey as a, as a kid all the way up through your career and then a pretty quick turnaround going into a front office. When you knew it was, it was time to hang up the skates and, and make that next transition of the career, it seems like a lot of times guys say that they don't want to give that up because they still feel those same kind of the, the emotional and, and physical drawback to the sport, even watching it. A lot of guys say that they like to take time away from it because they find themselves wanting to jump off, off the couch right and get back in. 
when you made that initial transition and, and then even at, at this stage of your career, does the player in you still react? Do you still get that kind of, uh, you know, natural instinct to, to get back out there? Or are, uh, you, know, are for, you away for me, from that? Uh, for me, I never, once I made the decision to take the general manager's job that was offered to me, I never really, I mean, I like to go on the ice skate around and stuff, but I never really thought about playing it that much again. But when I retired from being a GM, I found that what I missed the most was just like what we went through here today with about all the scouts and just sitting and talking hockey. About every part of hockey and players and when you when you live in Florida like I do, you, you, you don't have a group to get together. Right. But when I come back up here, there's... You know, I get to sit and talk with Chuck and Holmgren and the coaches and all that stuff. That I love that. Just, and I'm not a, in a decision-making mode, so I can talk and say and everything else. You know, right? It's that's what I I miss the most. Is that kind of nice to be able to just throw out what whatever it is that you you think or feel and know that really it, it doesn't come back on come back to well, you yeah, either, yeah, either way. Yeah. It, you're a little bit. You know, you don't want to start saying things that make it look like you want to run the club and stuff. But Chuck knows me good enough, and Homer knows me good enough that I can talk and ask questions and stuff. And, and both of those are strong men; they they can make their own decisions. It's not. I would never try and put myself in a position where I'm trying to make a decision and stuff like that. It's, and I wouldn't want to. But I do really love sitting there. And then, like, we all go over to Ots here last night after it's all over. There's about ten of us at the table drinking beer and talking hockey and who made a good decision and what teams got better. And, you know, <laughs> you're not solving any problems, but you're talking about them. <laughs> That's good. It's good. And it's fun. Yeah. The last thing I, I want to ask you, I know that every summer you go back, um, you have a, a house on a lake up in Flin Flon, but I'm told that you're not a, you don't like to fish. So, so if, what, what, is, what is a guy who does not a lot of nothing – when they're on, when they're summer, their summer house, their summer cottage, and they don't live on a lake and they don't fish, what the heck do you do when you're up there? <laughs> well, they got a nine-hole golf course. But okay. I, we play with my nephews and brother-in-law and stuff maybe once, twice a week. Uh-huh. I fish. We'll probably fish maybe. I mean, we got the boat, so we jump out. And, but I'm not one of those guys who's gonna go find a lake where you got to tripe through the bush and take a quad and all that. My nephews do all that stuff. My son does all that. I, I don't like fishing that much. But I, I like sitting on a boat and drinking beer and throwing a line over and hoping you don't catch anything because you don't want to take it off the line. You know? You've mentioned drinking beer a lot. So let, so let, which is, hey, I, I like, I I like drinking great. beer, right? So usually we ask a, a food question or something like that. So let me, let me ask you this. In your playing days, what was your go-to? Uh, and and has has your taste in beer changed? Especially because craft beer is like the thing. Has has anything changed, or is it still just like the same? There's no bad beers. <laughs> <laughs> I come through it like I grew up in a mining town, where even younger guys and I was diabetic too. I was supposed to be, but everybody, the kids, 15, 16, 17, started drinking beer. Probably the same down here, but and then in when I come to Philadelphia. Like, beer was a staple as part of a hockey team. Right. You know, there was beer in the locker room and 
for after the games and stuff. It was, and that was a normal thing, play hockey and go have a few beers. So after practice even, you know, have a sandwich and a couple beers. That was just part of our life. They didn't even think about today's world. That's the wrong thing to do, obviously. <laughs> yeah. and, and it was the wrong thing to do then, only that's the way we were all taught and did it. And I, as a, I, I love sitting and talking, hockey, as I've said, but anything. Get a, three or four guys together and a couple beers and just bullshit, that's, that's wonderful for yeah. me. For yeah. me. I mean, it is. Yeah. I remember the days there used to be beer in the press box. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. <laughs> you, guys used to, you guys used to offer us a couple beers in the press box after the game was over. <laughs> Man, I missed, I missed the boat on this. You missed the boat on this. Right? Was, so yeah. You grew up in the wrong, wrong time, right? So I guess it's fair to say that sports science would have probably ruined uh, a little bit of your, your time plan. Wouldn't have made <laughs> it quite as fun. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> well, that's great. That's well, Bob, nice. listen, we really appreciate it. You gave us a great half hour. Right, thank thank, you. thank you for the time. Really do appreciate it. And, yeah. and uh, enjoy the trip back to Florida. We're jealous because we have to stay up here in the cold for another month while you get to yeah, see down. Okay. Thanks very again. Nice. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was our exclusive sit-down with Hall of Famer Bobby Clark. Anthony, a, a lot, a lot to digest there. Yeah, and just first thing I want to say is, you know, people are like, well, well, gee, you guys, why did you get Bobby Clark on at the trade deadline? Um, uh, I had been told that he was going to be in town um, for the week leading up to the trade deadline um, and through the trade deadline and the and the Buffalo game. And um, I thought, well, gee, I mean, you know, we, we put a request in. I'll just let everyone know. I mean, we did put a request in for Chuck Fletcher. Um, Chuck asked to, you know, kick that can down the road a little bit. I, I think that he probably didn't want to do it, you know, with as busy as he was right around the trade deadline. And I understand. Um, and, and so my thought process was, okay, I already did a, a, a story with Brent Flair, so I don't want to – go down that road a second time because basically be asking the same questions again as the assistant general manager. We had the coach on, Scott Gordon. Um, well, where do you go next? And with with Clark being so involved um, as far as replacing Ron Hextall with Chuck Fletcher and, and uh, you know, making helping making the decision to, you know, go with Gordon as an interim coach and, um, you know, having been a former general manager himself and knowing how Chuck operates – I kind of thought that would be a really good person to talk to just to kind of get a sense for, you know, for Chuck and, and how he was going to approach that trade deadline. Well, it turned out we weren't able to get him before the deadline, so we were able to talk to him the day after the deadline. Um, and, and, you know, it was great to get some insight because, because Bob, for um, the, the time he was here, uh, spent more time in the room with the scouts, as he said, and was more, you know, more of a, I mean, he's the executive vice president, right? So he just offers some opinions. It's almost like he's a paid consultant in a lot of ways. Um, he offers his opinion but really stays out of the decision-making process, leaves that to Chuck. Um, but he offered some perspective from the room. I mean, he was sitting in that scout's room, and he talked talk to us about what it was like in there um, with Chuck running back and forth and checking in on guys and stuff like that. So really good communication. It's nice to really hear that that kind of working environment is back with the Flyers. Whether it ends up being successful or not is, is, is not necessarily as relevant as the fact that this is a, this is a, a much more communicative group. And that's what, that's what Bob pointed out. I mean, he talked about how small, um, you know, Hexy Circle was, you know, that he was very private and didn't want to share this information. And Strange, I, think that I that feel like somebody I'm talking to right now 
<laughs> reported that and was then told that he just had an agenda to push. Weird. Yeah. Weird yeah, how that works out, huh? I hear you. I know. Sorry. I know. But um, anyway, so uh, yeah, so it's it's good to, it's good to at least know that that's taking place, right? Whether again, whether Chuck Fletcher ends up being successful as the general manager here or not uh, over the course of his Flyers career, um, it, you know it, he's at least relying on the opinions of the other people in the organization and not just trying to make a decision by himself. And that's a good to me that's a good thing. That's good management. No, I agree. It's a shared leadership philosophy. It's better. Yeah. It's just yeah. better all the way around. Um so. you know, I I think more than anything. So there were there were two things that I took out of that. And and I think one of them should put a lot of fans uh minds at ease maybe a little bit. Um as we talked about in the beginning of the show, it felt like so many fans didn't want to see Wayne go or they wanted, you know, if he does leave, they want to pursue him again in free agency. And, you know, Bobby Clark said in our interview that he, you know, the Flyers had to move on from Wayne Simmons. That doesn't sound like a guy who was confident in a deal being struck, which speaks to what you were saying before that, you know, if if Ron Hextall wanted to re-sign Wayne Simmons and thought that he and the agent were close enough, he would have gotten it done before he was fired. If Chuck Fletcher thought that there was any chance of striking a deal and he was interested and Simmons' agent were interested in sitting down and they were close on numbers, he would have gotten it done. It's very clear that as an organization, they realized that they were too far apart. And and honestly, I think that, in, in a way, is setting up for this organization to not pursue Wayne Simmons again in free agency unless the market never really uh, gets established for Wayne Simmons and all of a sudden, with you know a few weeks left before the season starts, he's without a deal, which I don't foresee. But if he does, then maybe you talk about a short-term deal. And then I think ultimately that's something that maybe the Flyers do end up being interested in. So that's that's one. The other the other thing, and this is where I'm excited that our video guy Craig was there, and and the uh, the interview with Bobby Clark will be up on the Crossing Broad YouTube channel. If you go back to where I asked about RFAs, it's very clear that. In Bobby Clark's mind, the Flyers, Chuck Fletcher specifically, should be open to and perhaps getting ready to offer a restricted free agent an offer sheet this offseason. And the two players I mentioned before were Mitch Marner from Toronto and Braden Point from Tampa Bay. Um, as he said, that the, uh, the Forsberg's agent once said, if you're not going to use the rules, we're going to change the rules. And I thought that was interesting. I, I really did. And when- when it was like, well, what if that burns a bridge? And he said, who cares? I don't care. <laughs> like, that was great. You yeah, know, it, it's, it is easy for him to say he's not the guy making the moves anymore. He's not the guy who has to deal with these other teams day in and day out. But I I wonder, because Bobby Clark was Chuck Fletcher's, uh, you know, mentor, I, I wonder how much of an influence he might have on Fletcher when those guys do hit the market this offseason. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. Um the one thing, I, like I think that yeah, I think somebody's going to make an offer for Mitch Marner if he doesn't sign in time with Toronto, because Toronto's got significant salary cap issues. Braden Point, I'm not as convinced on, um, only because Tampa's losing a, a lot of money off the books on the defensive side of things. Um, they have three unrestricted free agents at the end of the season, uh, Strawman, Coburn, and Girardi. Um, and I think combined they make over $10 million, like 11, 10 or $11 million. So while they will need to replace them, and they may very well have 
young defenseman in the system who can you know step into those roles where you can sign somebody you know w- at least one defenseman relatively inexpensively um i think they'll make it a point <laughs> to, to to sign braden point uh in advance of um it getting to the point for an offer sheet so uh so i i think that i think you know but again it's nice to hear that you know the flyers are, are not going to shut off the the notion of potentially going after an rfa if they feel they can do it and if you have the salary cap money that you have could you could you if you're the flyers offer you know like a ridiculous contract for mitch marner knowing that it would eat that either toronto would have to blow up part of their team um to match it or let him go yeah, why not? And 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 yes, you have to trade four first round draft picks <laughs> for that. Assuming you go over what is um, ten and a half million annual average value. Yeah, to get to, to four. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So what? <laughs> well, yeah, because <laughs> like, I, at that point, like that. Here's the here's the one thing about that. You look at it and you say, all right, I don't like the idea of parting with four first round picks. Fine. If you go and you offer that that sheet to Mitch Marner. That means that you think you're going to be a contender going forward. Those are going to be yeah. late first round picks, and and ultimately you shouldn't care, right? Like if if you think that you're going to be that good of a team, those late first round picks aren't going to separate you from the cup. And Correct. if and if something goes sideways, those late round picks probably aren't going to be enough to uh, to make you go back and kick yourself for not having you know the twenty seventh pick in the in the draft. So correct, you know. Yeah. So no, that was that was some good, that was some good good stuff from Bob. Um, I was really hoping that he would give you the actual brand of beer that he likes to drink the most. Yeah, we'll my, get I, we'll get that the next time we have him on. Um, I, I did I did uh, have one other thing <laughs> that I I enjoyed in that um, his his answer on analytics I thought was funny, and when I brought just, up was pretty funny. when I brought up my favorite wink wink stat expected goals, uh, he gave me the answer I was hoping to hear. So that was that was nice. I hate expected goals. I hate it in hockey. I hate it in soccer. I think it's a useless stat. Whatever. If it helps you sleep at night, uh, I don't know. I guess yeah, no, expect the goal sheets and, and you got to trust your you got to trust your gut. It. You um, trust right. your gut. So I think I think we've probably touched on enough. We have uh, an ice an iTunes review, and we, we do have a, we have we have another couple of uh, of messages that I thought were important for us to uh, to read on the show. So really quick, usually we love five star reviews, but I I will read this one. Uh, this is a three star review. I don't like three star reviews; they make me upset. I like five star reviews, one star reviews. I will uh, go back into your history and I will shame you for for doing such a thing but we've now hit 75 star reviews this is not one of them this is a three-star review it says russ shh, three stars by brizness man which i love the name i wonder if it's i wonder if it's actually briz oh that'd be awful i don't want briz to hate me russ is cringeworthy with all the millennial defense and asking pop culture questions but the access and interview style of anthony make it worth listening to flyers fans should definitely subscribe enjoyed the sky gordon interview a great deal and hope they work out the kinks by the way guys that's a carpet stretcher the thing that you were so fascinated oh, yes, by for in the yes. last episode, the, yes. the guy kneeing the uh, yes. the long metal rod into the, what, uh, the whatever the it is. For the fine, wings. that's called a, call it a carpet stretcher. But holy, how do you do that and not injure yourself? Like he was just driving his knee into a metal object repeatedly. Like <laughs> that's crazy to me. I agree. Um, I got, and I wanted to point this one out. So we have a a listener, Samantha Maines, who sent me a very long, uh, DM on Twitter. I'll get through this quickly, but I, I appreciate it. I don't want this to come off as self-aggrandizing that we're doing this, but, um, I thought it was nice because essentially like a five-star review, 
So I don't know if she left one. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. But she said this. Hi, Russ and Anthony. I've been listening to Snow the Goalie for quite some time now, and I, of course, already left a five-star review. Oh, there. Answer. Asked and answered, Your Honor. Uh, (laughs) I just wanted to let you and Anthony know about my experience listening to the interview with Scott Gordon. He is just a breath of fresh air. His leadership and coaching style has clearly impacted the locker room and the on-ice performance from this hockey team, but his personality and mindset is what is truly uplifting. I saw the TED Talk he referred to during the interview. Um, Scott is doing the necessary things to create an atmosphere and relationships with the Flyers players that actually elicits a healthy and positive locker room. I cannot be more happy that he is up here with us. It makes me think that all of this team has been going through with so much turmoil with Hackstall that they weren't able to um, that they weren't able to think positively about this team. I truly hope Scott stays with the organization because he's very influential and has made a huge impact in the AHL as well as in the NHL. I want to thank you and Anthony for being amazing reporters. Oh, that's just so nice. And giving the public the content that is informative, professional, and new. Nobody else in the media uh, for this hockey team seems to have the connections you have as well as the insights. I know Anthony had a lot of connections and has been part of this organization throughout the years. The work that you two do on Crossing Broad and this podcast just made me feel uh, like a better fan as well as an intelligent one. I have been a hockey fan for about a decade now, and I still shed a tear or two when I think about the Game 6 loss in 2010 or when Pronger got hit with the follow-through on the shot in 2011. This team has been through a lot from Laviolette, Barubi, Hackstall, and now Gordon. It's been a long time since I've had true faith about this team. This past offseason, I was so excited, but the start of the season was just a heartache. I never thought we'd be out of the darkness in the 2018-19 season, but Scott Gordon has truly impacted this team, and I'm so happy he has squashed whatever darkness had been infecting the locker room. The players weren't playing with hope, heart, or grit just a few months ago. Now they have something to play for. We have something to cheer for, and Philadelphia hockey has something to hope for. Um, and so that was that was that. There was more. I don't want to. Uh, I don't need to go into the rest of it. It was all very nice. It was all very much the same idea. Um, but they did say that because of the uh, the episode that we did about media a while back and about sources a while back that uh, she said she feels like she has a better understanding of uh, how the how journalism works and has a true appreciation for the work that we do. So that was pretty cool. Appreciated that tremendously, Samantha. So big thank you to you. Yeah, that's really awesome, Samantha. Thank you. Um, I got one, okay. Russ. I got a message. I got a DM on Twitter from an at edrew24. Eric Drew is his name. Hi, guys. It's Coaster Fan, and I'm a guy. That's all the message said. That's fantastic. Coaster fan, of course, left the last five-star review on iTunes. Good to know, Coaster yes. fan. You're the man. So, You're the Coaster so, man. So, yeah. So, the reason why he sends – just to give some context in case they missed the last episode. The reason why he asked that is because I was saying he, and you were like, well, you never know. It could be a, could be a woman. And I'm like, well, you know, yeah, you're right. It could be. And then I asked at the end of the, sh- at the, end of the pod – Hey, Coaster fan, you know, let us know if you're a guy or a girl, so that way we know in the future if we reference you, if the reference you is as you know the right gender, and uh, and so that's why he responds. And so I sent him a message back, and I said, um, you know, we'll talk, we'll mention it on the next episode. Um, Watch, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your flyer fandom. And so this is what Eric Drew sent me. Grew up in Massachusetts, but hated how annoying Boston fans were. Became a diehard 4-for-4 four four Philly fan when I was real young. Danny Briere was my favorite player. I actually got to watch, uh, th- that I actually got to watch. Bernie Perrant was my all-time favorite, but I'm too young to have seen him actually play. Went to school at Ole Miss, and now I'm repping Philly sports while living in Charlotte, North Carolina. I always drive up to Raleigh when the Flyers play the Canes or to Nashville if the schedule permits. And now I'm lucky to see the Phantoms when they play the Checkers after the AHL realignment. 
put them in the same division. So there you go. So we got a little bit of uh, That's pretty cool. Of, How do we know that that person's really Coaster fan and not hashtag Foster fan? How oh, could be. Mm. Could See, be. It's the, the great commenter conspiracy. Yeah, although I think that it was too good of a uh, too good of a message to really sound like somebody who was trying to fake it for for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, I I hope uh, everybody enjoyed the interview that we did with Bobby Clark. Hope, which what, by, which what? by the way, which by the way, when they watch the interview, we didn't even get into this, but when they watch the interview, if you watch it on the Crossing Broad YouTube page, um, and you're wondering why I have the worst bedhead hair <laughs> in in history. It's because I think I only actually... five people are going to watch that video and be like, "Wow, Anthony <laughs> really didn't do much with his hair that day." I, I and those five people are like you, your kids, and like your parents. <laughs> I literally walked out of the house, and you'd think because I drove over there with you, you would think you would have said something. Look, I look at your hair, and I I thought it looked suave. It was it was a okay <laughs> by me. It's a total mess, and I was—I didn't realize it until we were in the. We were then after that. Uh, we were talking to. Uh, uh, I was talking to Hartman down in the locker room, and I kind of catching a glimpse like of my reflection in my phone, and I'm looking. I'm like, "What the heck's going on with my hair?" And then I looked. I was like, "Oh man, <laughs> I never combed it." This is why we can't do nice things. The we'll house. never be invited down there to Skate Zone ever again to do an interview. <laughs> All right, well. With uh, with the hair conundrum of 2019 now in the rearview mirror, we look forward to the uh, the stretch run here. Of course, we won't be back with a new press row show until the next Flyers home game, which is when Anthony next, next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. Um, so in the meantime, we will be uh, around on Twitter to talk. So follow us. If you go into the description of this episode, you can uh, click the links there at Ant San Philly at Joy on Broad. Continue the conversation. We have uh, plenty of thoughts and and such. And if you had thoughts on the episode, thoughts. Or reflections on the Bobby Clark interview. Just let us know. We'll be more than happy to uh, to go back and forth and have a good chat. So, for Anthony, who you can find on Twitter, at Philly, I'm Russ, at Joy on Broad. Thanks for listening. Go on to iTunes, leave a five-star review, and uh, subscribe. Let everybody know. Send it out to all of your friends, your family, any Flyers fans out there, and let them know about the one, the only, the true Flyers podcast, Snow the Goalie.